It's Friday the 3rd of March and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. My name's Neil Shearing, Group Chief Economist. Dave is away this week, so I'm in the hot seat and I'm joined by Vicky Redwood, our Senior Economic Advisor, and Paul Ashworth, our Chief US Economist. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Paul. Hello. Hi, Neil. Now, the key issue in markets remains how far central banks will have to raise interest rates in order to squeeze inflation out of the system and for how long they're going to need to keep them there. There are several ways to cut this question, but most roads lead back to developments in the labour market. If central banks keep policy too loose, they risk creating a self-fulfilling wage price spiral that ultimately requires them to tighten policy even further. And if they keep policy too tight... Well, then they risk accelerating a downturn in the real economy and tipping economies into recession. Now, the problem for policymakers is that labour markets are incredibly difficult to read right now. We'll get more evidence in the coming week from US payrolls figures. But there's also issues to consider on the supply side, too. And this is something you've been digging into in recent work, Vicky. Talk us through the basic challenge facing central banks when it comes to the labour markets. Yeah, well, we saw big changes in the labour market and labour force over the pandemic. And it's really to do with how those changes are unwinding or not now. And I think there's two big issues. So one is the size of the workforce, so the number of people either in or looking for work and how that's moving. And then also issues to do with how efficient the labour market is at matching people who want jobs with the jobs that are available. And so those are the the two things that I think central banks will be watching particularly carefully now. Okay, let's unpack that. Um, When you talk through the supply side and and the growth of the labour force, what's happening there? Which countries have seen a recovery in the size of their workforces and which countries are lagging? Well, all countries saw their workforce drop quite sharply during the, the pandemic for various reasons. And And all have now seen something of a recovery, but the strength of that recovery is varying quite a lot between countries. The strongest workforce growth we're seeing now is amongst the major developed markets is in Canada and Australia. And I think that's because we've seen a recovery in immigration in those countries now because workforce growth in those two countries is normally particularly dependent on on strong migration. But in fact, we're even seeing a bit of catch-up immigration starting to come through. In most other countries, we're seeing a bit of a slow recovery, but still, you know, the labour force rising nicely. I think the main worries are three countries, really, Japan, the UK and Italy, because in, in those countries, the size of the labour force is still a bit below its pre-pandemic level, and it doesn't really seem to be rising very much is basically just a flatlining. And what's behind that flatlining, particularly in the UK, is really noticeable that the UK labour force is perhaps half a million people smaller than was the case before the pandemic. What's going on there? Yeah, the UK does stick out. Whereas with Italy and Japan, I think demographics can explain a lot of it. Demographics isn't really the current issue in the UK. The working age population there is is rising at an annual rate of, of 0.5% or so. Instead, the problem in the UK is the participation rate. The UK has a participation rate that's that's basically falling, still falling as it started to do during the pandemic. And that contrasts with an upward trend in its participation rate before the pandemic. And there's been a lot of speculation in the UK about what's driving this. Many people attribute it to the just the current poor state of the National Health Service and the the long waiting times that people are seeing, which is stopping them being able to work. And there's probably some other factors going on as well, perhaps something to do with the the sort of quirks in the the tax treatment of pensions, which is meaning some people are taking retirement earlier than they would otherwise have done. 
there's different issues going on. It's hard to tell exactly what's what's to blame. We're hopeful that over time these issues might unwind, but it's it's quite hard to tell exactly when they will unwind. Yes, certainly it goes far deeper than just problems with Brexit. So not something that the much heralded Brexit agreement, the the Windsor Agreement on Brexit, will necessarily solve. And what about labour market efficiency? That is to say, the efficiency with which the labour market matches available workers to vacant positions. That obviously has fallen quite a lot during the pandemic as we had lots of dislocation, workers moving around, shifting jobs, shifting sectors, shifting regions, shifting even countries. So it's much harder to match workers to vacancies and firms were having to to pay more to attract labour. How is that playing out and how do you see that unfolding over the, the coming months and quarters? Yes, yeah, so we saw evidence of all that effect that you've been talking about via a rise in the, the ratio of the number of job vacancies there are to the number of unemployed. So that just showed how firms were finding it harder to fill existing positions from the existing pool of unemployed and their skills. So the question now is, is can that vacancies to unemployment ratio come down a bit and help you know, as, as these mismatches start to unwind? Now, we've seen some maybe very tentative evidence of that, the ratio of vacancies to unemployment coming down a little bit in some countries, although there's sort of some question marks over how reliable the, the data have been recently. Looking forward, we think that, you know, these mismatches probably should unwind gradually as, as people reskill. But again, it's hard to, to really pinpoint the timing of, of all this. It, you know, if central banks are, are lucky, then maybe these mismatches will unwind quite quickly and we'll get some some of that benefit coming through in terms of the, the pressure on upper pressure on wage growth easing. But, you know, maybe it'll take a number of years for these things to unwind, in which case that's not going to be much help for how far interest rates have to go in the near term. Well, let me, let me bring you in here at this point. Vicky mentioned there was potential problems with the vacancy data and how accurate that might be. This is something that you and your team have been looking into in the case of the US. Walk us through some of the challenges with measuring vacancies and why some of the, the the headline data may not be giving us an accurate read of what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah, so obviously we had a rebound in the vacancy rate, the official jolts rate in December, but there seems to be a, some issues with that maybe because of response rates in the survey. We know that the response rates to the jolts survey have dropped. The initial response rates to as low as 30% now from closer to 50 or 60% pre-pandemic. So certainly there's issues, particularly about the initial data. That bounce back in the official vacancy rate looks at odds with some of the private sector measures we have. We have data from LinkUp and Indeed, which both show that job openings rates have continued to drop off and particularly dropped off over the first couple of months of this year. And the last thing that's a bit hard to square the evidence is that while the vacancy rate for the jolts rate went up in December, we saw an alternative gauge of labour markets like voluntary quits continue to go down. So when the job market's particularly tight, workers feel that they're able to leave one job because they'll soon be able to find another. But as a labour market calls, they'll be less confident of that and less willing to take the chance that they can find another job. So voluntary quits tend to go down. So what we've seen over recent months is that voluntary quits have been trending down quite a lot. Job openings, even on the jobs measure, had come been coming down up until that December spike. And then, as I said, the other sort of alternative measures of job vacancies have, have continued to trend down, particularly turning down over the last couple of months. But the anecdotal evidence seems to be going in the right direction as well. In the US, uh, there's less talk of firms finding it hard to to find staff now. 
particularly from the surveys we cover. Uh-huh. And of course, the wage data itself has improved too. So average hourly earnings growth, the monthly data shows average hourly earnings growth slowing to 4.4% in January on an annual basis. And the employment cost index shows private wages and salaries in the fourth quarter went up at a 4.2% annualised pace, which is a significant slowdown from where it was a couple of quarters before that. So everything appears to be going in the right direction. But of course, for the Federal Reserve, I mean, they're obviously interested in how this easing in labour market conditions and then slowdown in wage growth is reflected in price inflation too. And there, the progress has been very limited. The Federal Reserve is obviously looking at its measure of core services ex-housing on the PCE deflator measure. And that really doesn't show much of a slowdown at all. And that's one of the reasons why we now think the Fed might have to leave rates higher for longer. Yeah, well, we'll come back to that. The The big picture, though, perhaps on the supply, Vicky, I think is what you're saying is there is some hope, perhaps, that central banks will get a helping hand from developments on the supply side of the labour market, either through a recovery in the size of the workforce, which is already underway in many economies, but in particular through this, this matching process, this the, the efficiency with which labour markets operate. So in the dislocation from the pandemic phase, the efficiency with which workers are matched to vacancies improves, and that t- helps to, to ease labour market conditions. Vicky, just walk us through why this matters. Why does the efficiency with which the labour market work and operates matter when we think about the prospects, for example, of a soft landing in the real economy and how much work central banks have to do. This gets bound up in a lot of jargon, the beverage curve and so on and so forth. But just just walk listeners through exactly how, how this works and why it matters. Yeah, I think it, it matters if you care about how far unemployment is going to rise and how activity in the economy needs to be squeezed to get inflation down. You know, this is this is really important. If we can get some wage growth to come down just by efficiencies in the labour market improving, these mismatches unwinding. And if job vacancies can come down without unemployment having to rise, then that's a great outcome for, for central banks. The problem is if we if we don't get this reduction in vacancies relative to unemployment and we retain some of these inefficiencies in the labour market, then that means that the only way to get wage growth down is for central banks to raise interest rates far enough to keep policy restrictive enough to raise unemployment and bring about a slowdown in wage growth that way. So it's it is pretty crucial this point about how how things turn out. Yes, extremely difficult for central banks to read, of course. We've been talking about the supply side of the labor market and how it operates, but the demand side matters as well, of course. And we're going to get more news on that in the coming week, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast with the release of February's payrolls on Friday. Paul, walk us through what we're expecting from uh, the employment report and what should clients be watching out for? Well, obviously, we had that blockbuster increase in January of more than 500,000, which I think was a surprise for many of us. After that, we don't expect a continuation of that sort of strength in February. We think we'll probably get a drop back to something like the trend that we had before that, again, of closer to 200,000. January appears to have received a boost from maybe a little bit in terms of poor seasonal adjustment, but also the unseasonably warm weather. For many of the states in the northeast, it was either a record or near record warm temperature in January. And that certainly seems to have benefited employment in sectors like construction and even leisure and hospitality too. As I said, if we look at the vacancy rates that we have uh, daily and weekly data on, they've been coming down 
through January and February. Job cut announcements have continued to trend higher. But at the same time, you know, initial jobless claims are still very low. So certainly we don't expect any collapse in employment growth. So something like a return to the trend. But of course, after such a big gain in January, such an outsized gain, there's always the possibility of a big surprise on the other side. So something approaching normality, but like you say, scope for surprises in either directions, 200,000 gain is our forecast. If you step back from the payrolls, we've had mixed signals from the US macro data since the start of this year. I think coming into the year, if you were Jay Powell, you're perhaps starting to sleep a bit better. The, the economy seems to be cooling. Labour market conditions were easing a little. Inflation, as you say, was, was coming down. Subsequently, either the data have got against the Fed or there's been backwards revisions to the data such that inflation has been a bit stronger than perhaps we had thought. Where's the economy now in your judgment? The real economy obviously had an exceptionally strong start to the year on top of the big gain in employment and the further fall in the unemployment rate. We had a particularly strong month for retail sales. Motor vehicle sales were much stronger in January too. Even manufacturing output increased in January as well. So everything appeared to suggest that, you know, we'd had a resurgence in demand. Some of that, I think, is weather-related, but it remains to be seen exactly how much. The employment data will be the first real hard data we've got for February. So far, the survey data, the sort of soft data that we've got for February suggests that conditions remain quite weak. On top of that, we've got some limited data on credit card spending and motor vehicle sales now for February, which suggests that certainly retail sales drop back a little bit, which would be consistent with the idea that the weather played some, if not quite a major role in what happened in January. But as you said, I mean, it's not just about what's happening to the real economy. We've also had revisions to the month-on-month -month changes in the CPI and PCE measures of inflation. And of course, core PCE prices increased by a bigger 0.6% in January. So that's changed the inflation picture somewhat. It looks like inflation isn't going to come down as rapidly as we certainly thought. At one point, uh, core goods inflation is holding up a bit better. Used vehicle prices, for instance, have started to trend higher again based on the auction data. So it does appear the Fed was right. There is going to be more of a grind to get inflation down this year. We do still think it will come down a bit faster than most Fed officials seem to currently believe. And certainly we still think that we'll get a weak real economy in the second and third quarters, possibly even to the point where it's an outright recession, in which case that should aid the disinflationary process. So I wouldn't certainly rule out yet that we'll see rate cuts before the end of this year. But certainly, as you say, yeah, I mean, it's been a strong start to the year for the real economy and for the Fed as well. The inflation data has gone in the wrong direction too. And that's all for this week. You can find all of our research on our website, capitaleconomics.com, where you'll also find details of our new advanced products. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>